0: Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring George Daniel, and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing evolution. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask George a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So if you do have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or X, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use hashtag Fishing and hashtag Fly Fishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're listening to the show so you can let other people know about the great show we're having tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with George Daniel about fly fishing evolution. Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com. Or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce George, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under George's section that says, Register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of George's latest book, Fly Fishing Evolution, courtesy of Stackpole Books. To find out more about Stackpole Books, you can go to stackpolebooks.com, see all the publications that they have there. And you'll also find Fly Fishing Evolution and George's other great books on our homepage of our website, and you can click through there if you'd like to purchase them there. Now, here's how you can win George's book tonight, Fly Fishing Evolution. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that George and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and location using that same text box on our homepage that you can use to ask questions in during the show. So take notes, listen carefully, pay attention, and type fast when the time comes, and maybe you'll win George's latest book fly fishing evolution. Our guest tonight is George Daniel. George's passion is in fly fishing education and conducts lectures and seminars throughout the country. George began fly fishing at age six in Potter County, Pennsylvania, and when he was 14, his family relocated to central Pennsylvania, where at a local fly shop he found himself talking to his fly fishing idol, Joe Humphreys. Joe kindly took George under his wing and began providing him with his first formalized fly fishing instruction. When George was just 16 years old, Joe began to provide instruction on all levels, including the basic cast to advance nymph casting. George credits Joe for the bulk of his knowledge, but also graciously acknowledges many national and international fly fishing professionals who have worked with him in the past. Later, George has had an opportunity to try out for the Fly Fishing Team USA in Bend, Oregon, and after qualifying for the team, George had the opportunity to compete in five World Fly Fishing Championships and coach both the U.S. youth team and the Fly Fishing Team USA in four national championships. During this time, George has had an opportunity to travel the globe and learn from many of the best anglers in the world. George is a two-time U.S. national fly fishing champion and is ranked as highest fifth in the world. George's true passion is in fly fishing education. He appears at clubs and fly fishing shows around the country where he conducts lectures and seminars. He also logs more than 280 days a year on the water near and far. He is the author of four highly regarded and best-selling books, Nymph Fishing, Script Set, Dynamic Nymphing, and his latest book, Fly Fishing Evolution. He's also published articles in Fly Fisherman, American Angler, Fly Tire Magazine, and George is also an ambassador for a number of fly fishing companies, including Orvis, Tacky Fly, Boxes, Flycraft Boats, Regal Vices, Golden trout lanyards and loom. Currently George is an adjunct professor at Penn State University, teaching the legendary angling courses his mentor, Joe Humphreys, taught for years. He also operates a full-time guiding and fly fishing educational service called Living on the Fly. George, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing.
1: Thanks, Roger, it's good to be back.
0: Yeah, it's been a few years, but uh, just so everybody knows, I've done previous shows with George, 2019, we did one around his book Nymph Fishing, and then in 2015 about his book Strip Set, and prior to that Dynamic Nymphing. So we've got a bunch of shows you're going to want to go back and listen to in our archive after tonight's show because it's just uh, George just provides a a wealth of knowledge out there. So anyway, yeah, great to have you back, and we got a ton of questions tonight. So I hope you're ready. (laughs) This is a we got quite the response out there. And thank you so much for being able to reschedule with us. And uh, we still get this done this month because so many people were looking forward to the
1: show. It's my pleasure.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. So, uh, like I just said, you've written several books on fly fishing. What inspired you to write your your latest book, Fly Fishing Evolution?
1: With this book, it was, you know, with over the last few years, I really thought maybe – maybe I complicated things in the past uh, a little too much. And that's one of the things I'm now teaching full-time at Penn State. has really taught me that you can complicate things pretty easy. And I think that's one of the things I did in, in a lot of my earlier books. Even though there's lots of good information, good content, I think sometimes you can do a paralysis by analysis, just provide too much. So within the last three, four years, definitely it has improved my techniques and just the way I communicate. But Also, just I have gotten rid of probably like 80% of my equipment, you know, fly patterns, and pretty much just through journaling and just thinking about it, actually spending time thinking about what is like like the Pareto principle, like what is going to get like what is the 20% that's going to get me my 80% of my results. This is pretty much what this book is about. Is basically boiling it down to the very essence of just the core things that I think is going to help an angler catch fish dry fly fishing, nymphing, and streamer fishing with just a minimal amount of gear, but more of a, an appropriate mindset or a tactical approach to the game.
0: Yeah, and I think you did a great job with that. You know, reading through there, I realized yeah how much simpler it is, And but yet, you know, you talk in your book about getting better results in many cases with that simplicity, I guess.
1: Exactly. But
0: yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about, your book covers nymphing. It covers, like you said, dry fly fishing and also streamer fishing. We'll try to cover as much of that tonight as possible. But I wanted to start out with a couple of questions that were sent in that well, thought-provoking and make us think, and I'm sure we've all considered some of the things in these questions. But let me just start out with Frank Cotta's question in Loveland, Colorado. He says I've fished for 70 years, I love learning about new flies, equipment, methods, and more, while I don't want to go back to fishing as I did as a kid, I'm not sure that I enjoy fishing more with all the new stuff. I wonder if just learning itself is not part of what I enjoy. Am I an outlier? It doesn't matter. I suspect I will keep learning. My fishing buddies have labeled me the professor. That's okay. I like fishing with other professors and wannabes. So um, I know I feel how Frank feels. <laughs> like the, One of the joys of fly fishing is learning you know, all the time. And is that the way you look at it, too, George?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, definitely, I love the question. And I think that's the process all of us go through. It doesn't matter what activity or hobby. I think a lot of times when you get into a new new hobby or just new activity, you still think, like, equipment is the most important thing. And, you know, I'm really getting into photography. That's one of the things I absolutely love doing these days when I'm not fishing. And, Even like two years ago, I was buying way too many lenses and way too much equipment. And after about two or three years, I realized that's not as important as learning about the techniques, composition, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and so forth. So, no, what Frank is describing is something that I think we all go through. And to be honest with you, Frank, you know, I give you credit. I mean, he broke through the barrier. And I think once you reach that level like Frank has and like a lot of you have, you actually enjoy the sport a lot more because you're not consumed with thinking that the equipment is the limiting factor. It's just your it's your mind and your willingness to learn and, and your ability to learn those techniques. So quite frankly, that is something that we're, you know, that level that Frank is at, I mean, that's the mental level that I hope to strive to be at, at some point in my life. I'm getting there, but I'm not entirely there because I still love my gear. But, no, <laughs> yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful place to be.
0: Yeah, great. James and... Hayman Idaho wrote in, he says, George, the improvements in techniques for tightline nymphing has developed an entire new legion of fishermen that, in my opinion, has led to less respect for the trout. The new mantras including rip lips, whack them and stack them, and an obsession with catching large number of fish as quickly as possible. When I started fly fishing in the 80s, uh, matching the hatch was the mantra, and the sport seemed to be a calmer, more gentle sport there seem to be a greater interest in the ways of the trout and the insects they depend on. Given the mortality rate of the trout, even when adequate catch and release techniques are employed, will this new wave of commando-type anglers that catch large numbers of trout eventually have a detrimental effect on our wild trout fisheries?
1: You know, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with Jim's comments with just the way the generation is. I will say that I live in central Pennsylvania, which is kind of... Central to like competition anglers. I mean, there are competition anglers or competition angler wannabes with their their big nets, and I know these people because I was one of them for a number of years. But I mean, I fish in areas where these anglers are all over the place. I'm fishing behind these anglers all the time, and I'm not seeing any mortality. You know, I'm not seeing dead fish floating because the places where I fish, and if there was mortality because of this, the high numbers of fish that these folks are catching. I would be seeing it on a daily basis because I'm there all the time. And, you know, quite honestly, that may change, but honestly I'm not seeing a negative effect physically on the fish. The fish in that point, I am seeing the fish's mouths look like pincushions. I'm seeing a lot more mouths that are, like, ripped open. I'm seeing that. I'm definitely seeing that negative effect. But dead fish I'm not seeing. But, you know, that's definitely one of the things I would like to see change with some of the competitive anglers, especially those that are on, like, social media and YouTube. And that's one of the things, like when I was coaching, I never really raised my voice with any of the kids unless if they caught a fish and then they just quickly threw it in the water to catch another fish. That was just a total disrespect and lack of respect for the fish. So I would like to see people that are on the competition circuit at that level, when they're doing their YouTube things, like just do a little better demonstration on how to properly land the fish and just admire these beautiful critters. And this new generation, I'm not going to go on here too much, but I work with so many young kids, and I think in young men and women, I think this was a stage that I'm seeing. Like when I coached these kids, a lot of these kids, these kids were like 16 and 18. They had that really quick mentality, catch, fish, and throw. But these kids now are graduating college. They're becoming responsible adults. And when I watch them fish and I fish with them from time to time, they have slowed down entirely. They love the process. But there is definitely a generation of folks that are just catch, catch, catch. But I think this is just a phase that they go through, and eventually they're going to learn that that's you know numbers is not the name of the game. Because Larry Dahlberg said it best. I mean, you go through different stages of life. You want to catch a fish, and you want to catch lots of fish, and you want to catch a fish, and then you want to catch fish the way you want to catch fish. So I think this is just a stage that you're seeing. And places like where he's at in Idaho and in Colorado, there's you're seeing lots of young anglers out there which is really good but this is just i guess you can say kind of an immature stage of these kids and my yeah. i have a lot of great hope these kids turn out to be really good people and good anglers and i think they're really good for the sport in the long term
0: yeah and it, that maturity comes i remember it wasn't too long ago um my son and i were over on the gunnison river took our drift boat over there and and normally you know when we float a river we'd switch off rowing and fishing rowing and fishing and this one day, we, you know, he started out rowing, and uh, and I was fishing, and he just said to me, he said, I said, oh, well, it's my turn now, you know, why don't you uh, fish and I'll row. And he goes, no, Dad, I think I'll just row today, you know. And he just was enjoying the day and watching me fish. And I, I really appreciated that, especially being my son, you know. It's like, oh, it's not about catching a ton of fish. It's about just being out there with your dad on the water, that kind of thing. And uh, anyway, yeah. I,
1: yeah. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: Yeah. I thought it was too. Yeah. So. Um. And then in some cases, I guess sometimes we have to give a little advice on the river if <laughs> people yeah. aren't. uh aren't Treating the fish there, but it's good to hear that you're not seeing a lot of mortality. So that's that's good to hear. Yeah. Roger Campbell in Cheyenne, Wyoming says with all the changes in tactics and gear, such as fishing nymphs where the line in the water is something other than fly line and using bobbers. When does the fishing become something other than fly fishing? As a child learning to use fly rods and line, I sometimes became frustrated and changed my fly for a hook and a garden hackle with weight added if needed. We did not call this fly fishing, although I was using my fly fishing tackle. I think he's referring to the Euro nymphing mono kind of approach. Is that how you read that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So. I mean, I totally get this, I and mean, I'm definitely part of the problem when I do a, a lot of the teachings and, and get people involved with Euro fishing. But you know, I'm not the ethics police in fly fishing. I don't really have a anything to say with certainty like this is fly fishing, this is not. I mean, there's always going to be debates. I mean, I remember when Kelly Galvez' book came out with streamer fishing. I mean, I was one of the first guys to buy it, and you know, you'd have the generation before. All these guys are doing is just throwing our polos. That's not fly fishing. I'm getting into kayak fishing now, and I recently bought a a kayak that has a a small trolling motor. And you go on Mm -hmm. the forums, and there are people arguing that anything that has a motor on is not technically a a kayak. So there's always going to be these arguments and so forth. You know, quite honestly, as long as you are not doing harm to the fish, I really don't care what approach that they're using. You know, like artificials, So, like, most of the waters I fish, I could care less if if it was open to, like, all spin tackle. Because what I'm finding here in central Pennsylvania is there's been, like, a huge change in the mentality with our spin anglers. The majority of our spin anglers, they're all fishing pretty much, like, one or two, uh, they're trimming the number of uh, the trebles, so they're going to, like, a single hook point, and it's barbless, and they're releasing pretty much all their fish. Most Mm. of the spin fishermen I see here don't even have creels, so... Quite honestly, if you're fishing artificial flies and you're releasing them and you're doing it in an ethical manner, I don't see a problem with it whatsoever. So, and I know the ethics between fly casting and, and, you know, Euro fishing, because Euro fishing is really, in some ways, it's very much kind of a bastardized version of spin fishing, but you're using fly fishing equipment. So, the mechanics of the cast is it's basically spin fishing and not technically fly casting. I don't know what is wrong or right, but as long as you're using artificials and doing it in an ethical manner and not harming fish, I really don't see what the harm is. As long as you're yeah. enjoying yourself, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. If you're having fun, you know, um, do whatever. I mean, you know, when I was a kid with a cane pole, I was having fun, you know, and sometimes the I think the snobbiness of fly fishing kind of gets a snobby reputation, and I don't think we need that either, but Anyway, good. I'm glad you addressed these. Of course, I think they were great questions and brought up some oh, sensitive yeah. topics and uh, appreciate you yeah, answering those. We're going to take a quick break and then when we come back, we'll talk about nymphing equipment, and how that's changed, what you're looking at now as solutions, and we'll take it from there. Enrico Publisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want to want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Glici Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with George Daniel about fly fishing evolution. If you'd like to ask George a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Okay. All right. So let's get into some some fishing here. Nymphing. Kind of broke this down to nymphing equipment, rigging, a lot of questions on rigging, presentation, and so forth. So let's try to work our way through these George and um, see where we go. Oh before that I want to ask you about you know what's happening in your fly fishing world so I know that whenever you publish a book it's a, a great event and, a, and quite the accomplishment. What else is going on with you?
1: Yeah I mean the, the book came out but I'm doing a few shows. I had to cancel a couple of shows because of my wife's uh, she had some recent surgeries that just kind of popped up but I'll be doing I'll be doing a handful of shows, including the Edison Show, Lancaster Show, and the Texas Trial Fest. It was supposed to be in Denver, but that got canceled, again, because of a couple operations that need to be done. But other than that, I'm doing a bunch of talks pretty much every weekend. I'm going to be somewhere at some city doing some presentations and talking to people. And I'm now teaching full-time. So they actually created a full-time teaching position for me, a directorship at Penn State. So I'm I'm technically a faculty member, a responsible adult after 45 years, I guess. So it's... It's a great congratulations. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks. So no, yeah. it's been good. And I'm fishing more now than I ever have on my time off. So it's life's good. Families are growing up, and you know, teenagers, and just life moves on. But uh, I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: Yeah. I notice your uh, your kids are becoming uh, stars in your book. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, keeping that camera handy, get some uh, shots for the book as well as for the family. Yeah, that's exactly. great. Yeah, yeah. Jim in Ohio talked about, he says, I don't want to be a one-trick pony, but I also know I can't be an expert at everything. Part of the game I love is learning, but I don't want to go all in, investing in every specialized rod leader technique. Does this make me outdated, nine-foot, five-weight, mediocre fly guy, or can I still be good at what I do?
1: So, no, I love that question. And, you know, and you're speaking to an Orvis ambassador. So, Basically, I could pretty much get as many rods whenever I want from Orvis, anytime. And right now, I own four trout rods, and pretty much two of them are backups. But I, what I do is what I think about is you can easily do your nine foot five weight. You can make that work. For me, what I look at is like, what am I going to do? Like sixty to seventy percent of the time, and most of the time, I'm euro nymphing. So I, I have a ten foot or a ten and a half foot three weight rod that I use. The majority of the time, but it's also a rod that I use pretty much for all my dry flies, wet flies, and even small streamers. So I just try to look at what I'm doing the majority of the time, pick a rod that can do that the best, but also do the other things fairly well. So if you are, you know, if you're not sure what you want to do, that nine foot five weight, I've seen people use it for everything. I mean, that was the rod I used for years for a number of things. I just, I just, if you're going to be getting into Euro nymphing, just the lightness of these rods and the castability, and because of how light the systems is, and I'm not going to geek out on this stuff, but like the modern version of Euro nymphing is a lot lighter than what people used to do. I mean, we're really using thin stuff like mono systems, very lightly weighted flies compared to what we were doing 15, 20 years ago. And when you have a very light system and you're trying to cast a light system on a rod that's designed to cast a heavy amount of weight on a rod tip you're going to have to really work hard to flex, and it's going to make it a little bit more uncomfortable. It will work, but these more modern nymphing rods will make life casting these rigs so much easier. And also, they're just great all-purpose rods. When people say it's a Euro rod, it's doing a disservice because it's good for Euro nymphing, but also it's a softer action rod. And most of the, my trout fishing, I mean, I'm a pretty good distance caster, but rarely do I cast beyond 30 feet for any trout situation. I don't want a typical 9 foot 5 or a 9 foot 6 weight rod that requires a lot of fly line outside the rod tip to to load the rod. I want a rod tip that actually has a soft tip where I can make very short, accurate casts for what most of my fishing is. So these Euro rods pretty much have become my all-purpose rods Hmm. accidentally within the last couple of years. So I use pretty much one rod, my 10.5 foot 3 weight, for pretty much like 80% of my fishing east or west
0: question came up from doug randall here he says Do the weight because i read this in your book so but he says does the weight of the rod determine the size of the fish i'm going after or the size of the flies i'm casting because you just said hey your kind of go-to rod is a 10 foot 10 and a half foot three weight and i think you addressed that in your book about but these new rods can handle larger fish even though they're lighter weight. do i have that right
1: Yeah, you do, and and a lot of these rods you look at, they have a three-weight tip, but like the rods that I work with, Orvis, and there's other companies out there too, but they may have a three-weight tip, but when you look at the butt section, like it's a beefed up, the butt section is more like a five or a six-weight. So if you want to play big fish on light tippets, you use the rod tip. You know, you, you go vertical when you're playing fish, but if you're fishing heavier tippets and you're playing bigger fish, you just lower that rod and you put the bend closer to the butt section of the rod and you're playing that fish now with the five or six weights. So it, these rods give you two levers. And, and this is nothing new. I mean, I remember Gary Borger's book, one of my favorite books, his book on presentation. I mean, Gary Borger talked about fishing a nine-foot three-weight Thomas and Thomas rod back in maybe the late 80s or early 90s. So this is nothing new. But I'm telling you, the way most people fish, the distance, if you're if you're fishing up close, you really don't want a, a very heavy, fast-action fly rod. You, in my opinion, you want something a little bit lighter that actually makes casting a lot easier and playing the fish a lot more pleasurable.
0: hmm Okay. Um, Joe in Colorado Springs says, "Tell us how the equipment, mainly fly rod evolution, has changed fly fishing." When I first started fly fishing in 1984, thick fiberglass fly rods were used. Now the featherweight, light graphite rods. Make presentations so much easier, and then he just he talks about flow tubes revolutionizing Stillwater. But I think you covered most of this. Anything more you want to say about how the rods have evolved?
1: No, no. I think I mean that pretty much covers it. It's just okay. the rods now are just lighter. You know, they give you more sensitivity, and it just it's not something that you're going to be catching 50% more fish, but it's definitely going to add to decreasing. Your wear and tear on your body, and it will right. help you pick up a few additional fish. So mm-hmm. that's it's small advancements. It's not I wouldn't call it massive advancements in the last couple, but it's just small steps with what technology is doing these days.
0: Greg Nichols in Littleton, Colorado. He says cane, fiberglass, graphite, and boron. What do you see next as the next step in rod development?
1: Yeah, good question. I'm not a chemical engineer, but I do work with chemical engineers, so. You know, that would be a question I would ask someone like Sean Combs or Joe Goodspeed or any of these rod designers. They're the ones that are geeking out and, and looking for the next, you know, material to be using. So I don't know. I think we're kind of maxed out on a lot of these things. And, you know, I'm not going to speak too much about this, but, I mean, I think maybe at some point you're going to see AI have some effect or maybe we can they can come up with a new compound or new element or some material synthetic. But right now, I think we're kind of maxed out on what the current available resources are and bringing them to market at a decent price. So I don't see, from what I've been told and talking to people, I don't see anything revolutionary coming, at least in the next couple of years, at least from what I'm hearing.
0: Okay. Several questions here. I'm going to try to wrap these together here. Daniel in Dallas, Texas, Jim in Ohio, Gary in North Carolina are all asking about Tenkara. Daniel asked, uh, what do you think about using Tenkara with heavier nymphs as a stepping stone to long later euro nymphing, and then, Jim, what circumstances would you select Tenkara over traditional? And that's kind of what Gary's question was, too. So can you address those, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I've used Tenkara with complete newbies, like complete beginners, I mean, and I use them. I still use Tenkara rods from time to time, but, you know, sometimes for whatever reason, when people get started with fishing, when you have a rod and you have a reel and you have the rod hand and the line hand, for whatever reason, for some people, it can kind of almost complicate things and it just almost kind of overwhelms them so anytime I felt like people were overwhelmed whether worried about where their line hand was going and the rod hand I always had a, a 10 car rod as a backup so most of the time I'm doing everything with a regular rod I still think rods regular rods are superior just from just the way that you can break them down from that standpoint but also like when you're fishing like so much of my line control is done with the line hand When they talk about euro nymphing, like I'm not keeping the rod tip high. Pretty much I'm keeping my rod tip really low and level these days. It's not high stick nymphing. It's more like level rod tip nymphing and using my line hand. And the disadvantage of the 10 collar rod is that when you're casting, there is no way to strip in line. So the only line management if you're casting upstream as the drift comes down towards you is elevating that rod tip. And when you're fishing really small streams and you have tight cover, it's going to be difficult to elevate that rod tip without coming in contact with obstacles and then if you have windier conditions the higher the rod tip and the higher the leader the bigger the sail so i don't use Tenkara that much the only time i use it is if i think people are just completely overwhelmed with the system and there are some people that i've worked with just a couple that have like physical disabilities where maybe they have a shattered hand or they just have some sort of paralysis with their hand where they have lost most function or most strength in their hand something like a tin car rod just makes casting like it just requires really nothing more than just as you know just like a little flick of the wrist so
0: right it's it's
1: really good for those with physical difficulties and then also for like my kids that's how I got my kids started with fly fishing is using a tin car rod with a little bobber off of it it was just incredibly intuitive Mm -hmm. but that's pretty much where I draw the lines any other situations I'm pretty much using a, a regular fly rod for my purposes because I just think it's just more effective all around.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. I remember the first time I fished with a 10-car rod, I was looking to bring that line in just like you say. You know, I'm going, well, I yeah. can't get the line. You know, it was like it was really uncomfortable, that, you know, because I'm so used to controlling the line, you know. And, uh, okay. yeah, I was just had, to, had to laugh at myself. I said, you have a lot to learn about tin car. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, um, Ed in Florida, he says, I fish with a three-weight 10-6 rod and sometimes walk a considerable distance to the river. I prefer not to carry a 9-foot-5-weight dry fly rod or my 9-foot-7-weight streamer rod. I know some competition anglers carry three rods. Is there a rod system you recommend to fish nymphs, streamers, and dry flies? so I only have to carry one rod. The problem with extra rods is for getting one on the bank or slipping on the rock and breaking a rod if you fall in. This is more of a concern as I get older, and I think you address this in your book as well, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was a former competitor, so I would bring three, four rods on the stream at a time. Even when I was guiding, I've gone more to education, so I'm just focusing on technique. I'm not necessarily like trying to provide and get and maximize our fishing, you know, the amount of fish that are coming to net, but just focusing on, like, teaching good skills. And when I was guiding and competing, I would carry multiple rods because I wanted to be ready for every conceivable situation. But what I'm doing is I'm kind of displaying the balance. So I just talked about this a little bit, too, as well. Is that 10 and a half foot 3 or even my 11-foot-3 weight, pretty much I have a 3-weight double taper fly line on the reel. And when I'm euro nymphing, that 3-weight double taper never sees the light of day. I have a really long mono system. I attach directly off the fly line loop, which I still I keep the loops on these fly lines these days because loop technology is fantastic, and I hate cutting the loop off of a $120 fly line. So I have that, and then if I decide I start seeing fish rise on the surface, I have a, a little plastic cylinder or like a foam cylinder. I'll wind my 35 to 40 feet of mono system around that, I have the fly line now outside the rod tip. I have some dry fly leaders. I'll do a loop-to-loop connection, and I can fish small dry flies and even small streamers uh, with that rod. And I don't really throw big streamers. A lot of what I've been doing the last couple of years is I've gone away from the mentality of go big or go home. I know big flies do catch big fish, but I'm finding now that even a lot of the 2- to 3-inch streamers are going to catch still lots of good-sized trout, and I can do that easily with my 3-weight. So, for me, I just I have that three weight rod, and I pretty much do everything with that rod. The only time I'm going to have a like a seven or eight weight is if I'm really going after bigger fish where I know there's consistent fish that are 20 inches or greater. I'm going to be throwing like flies that are like five, six, seven inches plus. But any other time, that three weight, I get the job done. It may not be best for everything, but it has just completely simplified my process and, and reduced the amount of stuff I carry on the stream.
0: Yeah, I, I hear you there. And I remember at a I was in a parking lot one day with and just putting my vest on and stuff and got to talking to the guy next to me and he said, Oh, you got a lot of gear on you and I said, Well yeah, I know <laughs> uh, And he, he says, Well he came over to me and he showed me, you know, it was about the I would say it was like an altoid box, you know what I mean? One of the yeah. the larger yeah. altoid boxes. And he opened it up and he said these are the only flies that I take, and I I never have problems catching fish. He had about he had about a, you know a couple of dozen flies in there, and I go, yeah, you got a point there. <laughs> yeah. a lot of times I carry all this stuff, and then only use a small portion of it. Um, yeah, but exactly. yeah, we get caught up in our gear. I mean, that's part of the fun too, I think. But uh,
1: it is. So, if you like gear, and yeah, that's part of the fun as well. And just like I think, like you're saying, and uh, the gentleman before, it's just you know, sometimes you just kind of evolve beyond that and you just, you want to focus more on the experience and usually to kind of have a little bit more of an intimate experience, you just have to leave some of the gear behind and that's where I'm currently at in my life. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Jerry in Lexington, Kentucky says, is it bothersome to you that a portion of today's equipment has gotten far too expensive? $250 nippers, $1,000 rods. When much costly uh, less costly rods reels and fingernail clippers are very good quality these days so yeah the prices are getting way up there and especially if you're buying you know saltwater rigs and so forth but what are your thoughts on where the prices have gone
1: i'm bothered by everything i mean i drive a ford f-150 i was able to get a couple years ago at forty thousand. and it was basically a brand new vehicle and I know I'm probably never going to own another full-size pickup truck because when I'm in the market for another full-size pickup truck, even base models, it's it's going to probably be like fifty-five or $60,000 for just the base model of the same truck I have now. So everything is going up in price. I mean, no matter what no. you're looking at, it's, it's – I mean, you go to the grocery market when, with kids I have, I'm going through four or five gallons of milk a week, and, I mean, that's costing me close to 30 bucks just in milk. Stuff. Milk. <laughs> but, it's, but, yeah, I mean, but when I – like, when I teach at Penn State, and that's, like, even with anything else, like, it's, I explain that it doesn't have to be as expensive as you think it can, and just like Jerry was saying, I don't promote the highest quality rods. I mean, a lot of my favorite rods are, like, the lower price point and mid-level rods, even though I do have access to some of the higher-end rods, so it's definitely troublesome, and it's marketing. People, you know, they're trying to sell products and so forth, but you just buy the product that you can afford and feels best in your hand and just take mm-hmm. care of it, and that's it. Honestly, that's one of the cool things. If it's an investment, but if you buy a rod even for 1000 bucks today with a lot of these companies, you'll have a warranty that will guarantee that the product for the next 20, 25 years and so on. But just buy what you have available. And Facebook Marketplace and all these other options always have good deals. So yeah, it, it's troublesome to see some of these prices, but everything's going up in price, and you know it's just yeah. the way life is going.
0: Yeah, and really, since you know post COVID, I just noticed prices and everything. I mean, you know, I buy the same meal at Wendy's, you know, all the time, and it went from uh, I think I could get it to five and a half bucks, and now it's like nine something. Same thing, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. and I thing. and I get a yeah. free drink because <laughs> I'm a senior, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, yep. Yeah, go figure. Charles Card in Dutch John City wrote in, he says, in your opinion, what in fly rod design, construction, line size, length, componentry, or action is the most beneficial advancement to the modern fly fisher? What drives fly rod advancements more than any other factor? Also, as far as tackle or gear, what is superior to yesteryear and what is falling behind? So in my opinion, I believe the polymers the tippet material is made of It's getting stronger by far for its diameter, but I see hooks bending or breaking far more than 20 years ago. Do you feel the same? And if so, is it because our monofilaments are just that good, or are our hook manufacturers skimping on steel quality and rushing, tempering practices? Your thoughts?
1: Yeah. I mean, Charles is, I mean, he's top-notch. I mean, I used to compete against him, and he's just a a very well-respected guy up in Dutch, John. So, hi, Charles. And... No, that's a good question. I mean, when it comes to the monofilaments, absolutely. I mean, the monofilaments and fluorocarbons, I mean, what is going on now versus what I was even using 10, 15 years ago. I mean, the quality of the monofilaments and fluorocarbons has just increased tenfold. So definitely an increase there. Hook quality, I think one of the issues, I don't know if it's skimping on quality. I think there's a big race, just like there was with fly rods a number of years ago where Everyone was always trying to go for the lightest fly rod. That was one of the, the main themes seven, eight years ago. And, you know, and what you end up doing was having to thin out the walls because there's only so much mass. And you can have this incredibly light, sensitive rod, but you're also going to have a lot of carnage. And I think that's one of the things that's going on with hooks is they're trying to create, like, these needle-like hypodermic needle points that just can just cinch into a fish's mouth with the least amount of pressure. And there's this race to create this really thin needle point and when you do that no matter what quality steel you're using in whatever process you're going to be sacrificing some level of strength and durability in that hook so you know i don't think it's just manufacturers trying to get lazy i just think it's them fighting against one another to get to a very thin ultra point or like the thinnest point that's going to provide the best hookup but in doing so i think a lot of times you're definitely sacrificing durability and that's why you know, if I'm going where Charles is fishing, I mean, he's fishing some places where there's a lot of big big fish, big water. I probably wouldn't use as many competition hooks there. You know, the competition hooks that are ultra thin, needle point, mm-hmm. you would be bending a lot of fish out. Where I'm fishing in central Pennsylvania, where the average fish might be 12 or 13 inches, and I get the occasional 20-inch fish from time to time, I never have any issues with hook points bending out. So mm-hmm. it would definitely be an issue with some of these hooks in waters where Charles is fishing and guiding.
0: Okay, okay. Let's take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll dig into some rigging questions, a lot of rigging questions here. So hang tight here, George, and I'll be right back. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of -of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. If you're listening to you Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with George Daniel about fly fishing evolution. If you'd like to ask George a question, go to our homepage, and ask about fly fishing and fill out that Q&A box, text box, and uh, send us your question. Okay, um, rigging. Brad Holm, these are a bunch of kind of random rigging questions, but we're going to try to uh, roll through these, George. Brad in San Diego says, when fishing two nymphs, do you prefer to tie the top nymph on a dropper tag or do you prefer to tie the heavier fly either from the bend of the top fly hook or the eye of the top fly hook? How do you decide which method is best for different scenarios?
1: So with my nymph and rig, I tell you one of the things I'm doing lately is I'm pretty much fishing single nymphs most of the time. Back in the day when we were fishing multiple flies, that was because we were fishing heavier lines, heavier leaders. We literally needed the mass of two and three flies, like the combination of all that three flies to get the weight down into the water but because of how light the systems are with the incredibly long light leaders that these anglers are using these days, you don't need much weight. So I'm often fishing just a single hook point fly on the point. And then if I do decide if fish are starting to show signs of activity and they're feeding higher in the water column, I'll just attach a short dropper using a surgeon's knot, you know, 15, 20 inches above that fly and add my lighter white fly. But usually for me, the, the heavier fly is almost always on, on the bottom. It just, Keeps things easier casting, far less tangles from my casting standpoint. And then only when fish are super active am I going to be fishing two flies. It just makes things a lot easier for me. And I haven't found that I'm catching any more fish or any less fish by going to a single fly these days.
0: Because when you're fishing those two flies, one of them is going to be floating higher up in the water column, depending on how you've got that rig, right? So. Correct. When you say the yeah, fish yeah. are active, then you're looking for that rising kind of fish rather than one that's on the bottom.
1: Correct. And if it's early in the hatch or if it's just non-activity and you're fishing a fly 20, 30 inches higher in the water column and the fish are not lifting, you're just wasting your time and you're just pretty much increasing the chances of getting tangled. I know they say if you fish two flies, you double your chances, but that may be true, but it's also going to quadruple your chances of getting tangled. So uh, I just, I, I, I <laughs> yeah. just I just stick to uh, one fly most of the time and only use a second fly. Rarely, I would say, yeah, when I'm nymphing, I haven't fished three flies in probably five years nymphing. I will when wet fly fishing, when covering water, but I have not fished three fly rigs uh, with nymphing in quite some time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Chuck in uh, Lasserville, California, he says, there are many direct knots that we can use to attach a fly to the tippet. Do you see situations or advantages where a non-slip, Loop knot would be the preferred method to give the fly some unrestricted movement in the drift.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I think the non-slip loop knot sometimes is actually probably the best because I know I remember reading, I love old fly fishing literature. I don't read a whole lot of the new stuff, no knock against my own book, but I mean there are just some classic books out there. And Gary LaFontaine in his book Dry Flies talked about fishing a loop knot a long time ago. And i know some of my favorite guides out west when they're fishing hoppers or even a few guys i know back in michigan with like large hex patterns the mono non-slip loop knot especially when you're drifting your fly it just allows the fly a lot more play and you can use it with streamers or subsurface but i think people don't i don't think people realize is that if you're fishing a streamer like if you're casting down across and you're keeping that line under constant tension there's not much interplay when there's tension or that fly is being pulled continuously by the tension of the fly line even a loop knot is not going to allow that fly to have much sway or or play the time where a a non-slip loop knot really works is when you're typically casting more up and across or you know over and across with a streamer you're going to make a strip pause and then even after you strip the fly you actually pause a second like almost reach the tip towards the fly intentionally creating just a little bit of slack and allowing that current and that loop knot to give the fly a lot more play. So I think the loop knots, in short, work when you're typically drifting your flies and you incorporate slack in your presentation. But any time where the line is under constant tension, like typically like most nymphing and a lot of streamer fishing, I don't see it being a huge advantage because it's Mm -hmm. not giving that fly much play because of the tension being placed in the rig.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense, yep couple of questions on drop shot nymphing. Tom in California says, do you use it? If so, how do you rig? And Bob asked, uh, can you explain the difference uh, between the placement of flies and weight using drop shot versus your own nymphing?" So maybe you can kind of yeah. address those two together.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I use drop shot. I've written about it a bunch of times, and like fly fishermen, I've written about it a bunch of my books, but I will use drop shot, and basically it's just... I use it when I am forced to fish small flies in big water and the fish are down deep in the water column. So, like, if you're fishing, like, I've talked about this plenty of times, but, like, on the Madison River, and a lot of times you've, if you're fishing, like, little shopbacks, little midge patterns where it tends to be, like, that little 16, 18 tends to be, for me, like, my sweet spot. I get a lot more eats, big fish, small fish on that smaller fly. And when you're fishing that type of water, those fast currents, I mean you can only put so much weight tungsten beads into a size 16 so that is where instead of using a heavy anchor fly which is going to do nothing but just snag bottom you just on the point you do an overhand knot you put a couple small split shot not just one big split shot but you're trying to create more of a like a, a chain you know and I, what i mean by mm-hmm. that is like if you're going to do a drop shot just don't do one shot because like one shot is like the equivalent of an anchor like if you're drifting from a boat And you want to stop, you drop an anchor. If you want to drift from a drift boat, but you want to slow down but keep moving, you throw on a chain. And that's what a lot of people would do, like in Arkansas back in the day, they would drag a chain. So it allows them to kind of slowly move over or move down the stream but without stopping. And what you want to do with a drop shot, instead of just adding one big heavy weight, you add maybe three or four smaller shot where the weight's distributed, spread over, and it's going to kind of slide over the stream bottom. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I'm drop shotting, I will pretty much put my little rosary of lightweight split shot on the point, mm-hmm. a little overhand knot, and then usually I'm just going to wherever I want my flies to fish. If I want to fish my flies, usually eight to ten inches off the stream bottom, I'm just going to take a, like a ten inch tag of monofilament or fluorocarbon, do a little surgeon's knot above my my main line, above my my split shot, and just leave a tag there and, and drop a nymph uh, eight to ten inches off that. So. That's pretty much what I use. it. I just do it whenever I want to stall the fly and just keep them in play for a very long time. So typically in like really heavy, fast water like that, or if it's like really cold and the fish are lethargic and I'm just trying to stall the fly as long as possible, that is where the technique can really pay dividends.
0: Okay. Okay, good. Very good description. Um, Joe in uh, New Hampshire uh, wrote and he says, when I tight line nymphs, a long mono leader, 30 feet. After about an hour or so, my line becomes twisted so that it starts to tangle in front of my reel. I've put on a new leader, but it'll eventually get twisted. I've tried to self-analyze my casting. Am I doing too much of an oval Belgian cast? Any suggestions correct or eliminate this? And any thanks for your books, videos, and info you share. Is this a common problem that he has?
1: Yeah, when you're fishing monofilament, that, even the really good fly casters, all of them, you're, gonna, you're going to incorporate that light monofilament wrapping around the rod tip. And and there can be a number of causes, but from when I'm doing the large number of lessons I do in my own fishing, I think one of the biggest causes of that is that you're making too much of an erratic back cast or forward cast. So what I mean by that is that when you're making your back cast and when you have a heavyweight fly, And you go back you make an erratic back cast and that line will tug like it'll kind of tell you or indicate that it's time to go forward but if you accelerate too hard on the back cast or too hard on the forward cast if the jerk of that fly is too much it's going to basically bounce back onto itself and that slack i mean it's almost like the line like jumps around the rod tip so i quite honestly what i'm saying is like you actually want to do more of a an oval or a belgian because what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep that line under constant tension to avoid that line bouncing back and wrapping around the rod tip. So try to avoid the the jerky straight back and forth cast and do more of a slower oval cast, and I think that will eliminate a lot of the issues.
0: Okay, now that was actually uh, Andy's question. Joe was talking about the line getting twisted and tangled in front of his reel. Is that a similar thing? this? just get oh okay
1: um, gotcha gotcha yeah so that is depends on what monofilament you are using so quite honestly there are like depending on like if you're using ultra thin monofilament uh, and it depends like if you're using like the stuff I, i'm using now is uh, it's called the pierre sempe. i may be butchering the name but it's a very thin very soft supple monofilament if you are casting flies that have any sort of like wind resistance and I'm talking about even like a, like an SOS with like the flash wings, if there's any sort of like deflection of that fly as it's going through the air, it, it will create like tangles and coils. So when if you are dealing with that type of coiling, chances are like either your monofilament is too thin for the flies that you're casting. So you either need to go to a heavier monofilament or you need to pretty much go to like an all-pertagon style pattern where it's basically just a a very streamlined bullet like pattern without any sort of fuzz fur or feather sticking off of that that's going to cause that deflection and basically you know you're trying to like cast a like a size 12 dry fly on like 8x tippet that's exactly what's going on but you're doing it with a lightweight nymph so just mm-hmm. you need to go go a little heavier or really thin out your your nymph pattern if that makes sense
0: Okay okay I'm going to jump down to Charlie's question because it involves this too he says I started going ultralight on my mono rigs. I've gone from 30-pound OPST laser line to 12-pound and 18, 12 pound and 8-pound nylon monofilament. After hours of fishing, I've had both 8- and 12-pound break high in the guides. I suspect abrasion of the line against the guides. Is this the cause of failure? Have you seen this issue before? If yes, what have you done about it? And when using these ultralight rigs, how do you control where the break is going to occur? How do you keep no, the line from
1: breaking? Yeah. No, yeah. that's a great question. That's a great, and it, that does happen. So even, you know, these monofilaments that you're selling, I mean, you know, it's because, like, you're going through the guides, abrasion is going to occur with monofilaments. So that's just that's just a fact of life. And, and what the one of the ways I've done to kind of eliminate having breakage higher in the monofilament is just when you're fishing tippets, like, you have to, like, jump, like, at least maybe, like, three or four pounds. So, like, if you're fishing, Mm. like, eight-pound test monofilament as your baseline, as your mono rig, you're going to have to fish, like, four-pound test as your tippet. But if you have a a tippet and a mono that are, like, within a pound or two of one another, you're going to often have breakage higher up on that system. So I just make sure that the the difference in breaking strength is at least three or four pounds. And since I've done that, I haven't had any issues uh, with breakage Mm. higher on that. But great question.
0: Yeah, um... He's out there working it, huh? <laughs> so Man. good for him. Yeah, Doug Randall in Philadelphia, he says, how important is tippet size? And I think he's probably referring to the, the, your own nymph thing. Is that less important than in the past? Well, it's,
1: it's incredibly important now. It's like you're seeing okay. most of these anglers now. is They're fishing like six, seven. In some situations, extreme situations, they're fishing 8X tippets. But mm. I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, the visibility. It has everything to do with the sink rate. You know, not until you actually do this, but when you're fishing smaller flies, I mean, just the difference between, like, 5X and 6X makes a huge difference on the sink rate. You're just decreasing the diameter. So if you don't plan to use... If you want to use split shot, like a lot of anglers do, tip of diameter, I don't think really matters a whole lot. But if you're trying to go the pure euro route and use nothing but the weight of the fly... And you're trying to achieve depth in certain situations with like smaller lightweight flies. Tippet diameter plays a huge factor in the rate that it sinks and drifts. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Good point. I, I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, you're trying to get down deep quick, right? And correct. Just a few a second or two is going to make the difference. Yeah. Gordon in Deerfield, Mass. Uh, I seem to warp my tippet, and especially the lighter stuff, when tying it to tippet rings. Any pointers on how to avoid that? And Kevin was asking, do you use tippet rings?
1: So before, I used to use a lot of tippet rings when I was using heavier systems, but anymore these days, because of how thin my systems are and because of how little weight, I mean, most of my flies I'm fishing now. I'm fishing like, you know, I would say probably like a size 16 is like 16 and 18 are probably two of my more popular sizes that I'm currently using on a year-round basis with like a small bead, like a little tungsten bead. And because of that, with a lightweight... I don't use tippet rings because when you have very little weight on the business end with my fly, that tippet ring does have a degree of mass and does act as a hinge. So within the last two, three years, I stopped using tippet rings entirely and just have gone just using a basic surgeon's knot to connect my tippet to my my mono rigs.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, you keep uh, mentioning surgeon knots rather than blood knots. Is that faster for you? It's sounds
1: for me, but I think um, for me, I what they I think they call it more of like a guy named John Horsey, a competitor over in England, but he referred it more of a strangulation knot. I think it's just like when I do tippet, like fluorocarbon to nylon, I'll often do like a three or four turn surgeon's knot where the, the pressure of the knot is kind of distributed over a larger area where I, I find like a blood knot, especially when you're connecting mono to fluorocarbon, at least with the way I do it, I just get a much higher burn rate and I have a lot more failures with Mm. a blood knot. So for me, at least the way I conduct the blood or the way I tie my knots, a surgeon's knot holds up. It's not as clean as a blood knot, obviously, but it definitely holds up a lot better when connecting mono to fluorocarbon for me.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Uh,
0: Talking about cider material is there a particular type or color or configuration of cider material that you use
1: no use whatever you you have available and lately i'm i'm just using there was wax ciders and like regular ciders on the market a couple years ago now they have a you know there's scientific anglers like one of my sponsors they have a, a cider marker but this is a marker that was already on the market through an arts and crafts store like years and years ago and they, they just kind of just you know worked with them and they're they're bringing them to market but it's uh the scaffer i think i'm maybe butchering the name but it's just a it's a really high vis marker that you can apply anywhere on your leader and then if you need to you can take an isopropyl or like an alcoholic wipe and you can kind of wipe most of it down and then you can reattach your cider higher in a water column so or lower so I, I'm not even using traditional ciders anymore. I'm just using these oh. little markers. And it just, so I, I've eliminated that. So I'm pretty much just running with mono rig and fluorocarbon tippet. And then I just have that marker, and I just mark my cider wherever I, I need it to be based on the, the depth of the water. So it has really, again, kind of simplified everything that I, I'm doing with my system.
0: Kind of like a um, suspension device that you can slide up and down depending on the depth you need. Exactly. You're using it in exactly. the same way. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, because I remember that you know there were some curly cue ciders for a while, that um, yeah, the spring kind of things, and then multicolored, and that's interesting. Um, Yeah, we've been talking about a lot about Euro nymphing and so forth, and we'll talk more about it here. But when is there a time to switch to a suspension rig? Do you talk about that in your book?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, is I use Euro nymphing whenever I have to get the flies like right on stream bottom or, or close to stream bottom. Anytime I, I feel fish are suspended higher in the water column or looking up, I'm immediately going to a dry dropper system. So I think suspension tactics do a far better job holding and suspending your flies at a specific height in the water column through a longer drift. So anytime fish are suspended, I typically are taken actively, emerging insects and nymphs, I almost immediately go to some sort of suspension device, and you can use indicators, but I usually use when you have like when you actually have hatch activity, I just use a a high-floating dry fly as an indicator. I think that Mm -hmm. is a a very effective tool, and also anytime you have to present flies downstream to a fish. I mean, usually with Euro nymphing, most of the time you're casting up and you're drifting down to the fish, but sometimes the the back door is closed, and the only way you can present the flies is is downstream. it's very difficult to present flies downstream to a fish with your own nymphing within a short distance. So hmm. anytime, I, anytime I'm forced to present flies downstream to a feeding fish with a nymph, I'm almost always using a suspension device.
0: Okay. A um, question came in on the internet here that kind of ties into this. Uh, he says, George, any comments, suggestions for tight line nymphing from a drifting boat?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I do that all the time. So basically, like we're, you know, Charlie is fishing around Dutch John up there in Utah. But, I mean, nice. I, I use tight line nymphing anywhere, and I think a lot of times the guides will tell you no, because they don't know the client all that well, and they don't know their skill sets, and sometimes it's easier just to throw on the bobber, but lay the bobber in the water, and let the guide pretty much manipulate the boat, and, and let the guide actually control the drift. But I use a lot. Any time where there are – any place where there's, like, high boat traffic, where fish are conditioned to see in boats, like on the Madison and so forth, you don't need to make a long catch. Those fish are not going to get spooked. They're not going to be moving away from boats because they need to feed, and the amount of boats that are going down through there, they pretty much stay within that same strike zone pretty much all day long. So I use it pretty much exclusively when I'm fishing with my brother from a drift boat, and I will use it once in a while around here from a boat. But, yeah, you can easily use this technique from a boat, without a doubt. It's very deadly.
0: Okay. Okay, let's move on to some presentation questions. And uh, what the question is, what are the most important considerations when you're on thing to get a proper drift? Now, you talked about, you know, like leader and tippet size just to get down fast as well. But what other, you know, what what are you looking at to get that proper drift?
1: First, the drift is where the fish are feeding. And it's just having a, a little basic understanding about fish behavior and the entomology and the bugs that are going on. I mean, if it's non-active morning, things are not active at all, and the fish are sluggish on stream bottom, I'm going to start basically my presentation casting up, but I'm going to be looking for my flies to be – bouncing bottom, I'm going to be looking for those flies to be bouncing bottom and occasionally catching bottom. If the fish are feeding higher in the water column, I may intentionally with my cider, if I'm euro-nymphing, I'm, I will intentionally hold the, the flies six to eight inches off the bottom. So I kind of let the behavior of the fish determine So what I'm talking about is depth. Uh, it's just the most important thing, I think, with a nymphing presentation is just knowing the depth that your flies are at. And that's what's really neat about the, the suspension or the cider is that the cider is not just a it's not just a strike tool but it's also a depth gauge so if you're hanging up on bottom all the time just take a look at the cider notice how high it is off the water and then just hold it a little higher off the bottom next time and if you're not occasionally coming in contact with the bottom drop the cider a little bit deeper until mm-hmm. you start coming in contact with the fish so the fish i would definitely say definitely depth and then the other thing is any more these days like the advantage to the ultralight systems that you're seeing more and more it is it's about drifting your nymphs. with the old school style of euro nymphing like czech nymphing and polish nymphing the way i was kind of taught how to do it it was just casting heavy flies lobbing them and, and kind of dragging them on bottom and that will work in some waters but with this technique it is such a refined technique where you're casting this lightweight fly upstream with this light system and You're watching this fly like your monofilament is like flexing like it's just twitching back and forth and which is indicating that the fly is like Drifting naturally and you're just looking for that tension or that cider or that mono just to kind of tighten and tense up but the most important thing I think today that we've done within the last couple of years versus 10 years ago is The system allows us to freely drift a nymph and all we're doing is just using the line hand and the rod tip to manage the slack as it gets back to us but the nymph is under free will, and we're just staying in control. And because of that, like, your flies are drifting like a dry fly. It's a much more natural presentation. So depth and then learning to go much lighter with the system and letting the flies teach them how to drift rather than dragging them like so many traditional tight-line nymphers are used to right. doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, big difference there. Yeah. Gary Cook is asking about how you best your nymph, if you do it all, in heavily weeded water.
1: Uh, Gary, I think he was at the first nationals. Hi Gary. Uh, that I was here uh, in okay. two thousand and five, so yeah. I don't to be honest with you, when it comes to weedy water, I don't do a whole lot of Euro nymphing and typically that is something where like on like some of the, the chalk streams style spring creeks I have back here, if it's heavily vegetated, pretty much I'm just gonna be sticking to dry flies or I'll just use like heavyweight jig flies and just work the little seams in the pockets, but I don't do too much euro in in like heavy vegetation waters. It's just usually I have to get too close and by the time I'm in position in on that type of water type i've I've already spooked the fish, so pretty much long distance dry flies or like jig streamers. I rarely use euro nymphs in like those really heavily chalk stream heavily weeded streams. I know some anglers do, but i just I just don't
0: yeah, yeah uh. Dave in Arkansas, he says his home water is the White River. Um, it's a big open river, and wind can be an issue when it comes to tight line or textile nymphing techniques. Do you have any suggestions for managing wind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I go down to the White. I mean, probably for 10 to 14 days every year, and I do mostly streamers down there. But I have done a good bit of Euro nymphing. Uh, but most of the time on that big of water. When you have winds, I mean, there's a couple ways, and one of the most common ways is just basically increasing the amount of weight within the rig without sacrificing the presentation. And for me, on like big rivers like the White River, where you can get these massive wind gusts, I fished that river where the winds were pushing 40, 45 miles an hour. You know, mm-hmm. using drop shot, using the drop shot rig. I mean, just mm-hmm. you know, you're still using small crest bugs, but you're just having to put a lot of weight on the bottom end of the drop shot rig and just letting that kind of help suspend and, and load. And I mean, there are things you can do with lowering the rod tip a little bit and using more of the line hand, but when you're dealing with that amount of wind, the two things I'm going to say is you know, use a little heavier rig like a drop shot, and honestly, it takes a little getting used to, but the thinner the rig, the thinner the mono, the less effect the wind's going to have on it. So, mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. so those are the, the two things I would start off with.
0: Okay, okay. Let's jump to talking about flies for a bit. A couple of the guys, are Chuck and Tom, are talking about confidence flies as opposed to and or match the hash or possibly both. You had flies in your book, but you didn't have a ton of flies in your book. You know, some books have uh, 100 flies in there, but you seem to have it restricted. Are those your confidence flies that are in your book? And maybe you can talk to that a bit.
1: Yeah, they are. I mean, it's just, I, I've really tried to figure out, like, what accounts for, like, 80 to 90 percent of my success rate, and these are just the flies, and I think at some point, most of us, when you do it long enough, like, you just develop enough skill in, or enough confidence in your skills. I, I'm still not there, not even close to where I want to be, but you still develop enough confidence with what you're doing that you, I think, quick sometimes believe, at least I do, that sometimes fly selection isn't as important as what depth speed and your drift are so i really find just i boil most of my flies down to like a handful of patterns you know some variations of like waltz worms uh pheasant tails and i really think for the most part variations like size and color of pheasant tails and like some pertagons can pretty much cover the majority of your major mayflies and the only time i really go matching the hatch is like from a subsurface standpoint is if you are if you're fishing like the hexagenia or if you're you're fishing like the green drake nymph uh, east or west where you have a an insect that just kind of has a unique physical characteristic it may have prominent gills it may have like a this little swimming motion that is where like if you have something that has a a unique physical makeup and movement that is sometimes where maybe you want to be doing something a little bit more exacting but for the most part, in my opinion, subsurface presentations don't have to be that exact. Where I will become a little more finicky when it comes to like size and color is dry flies. I just think for whatever reason, when fish are feeding on the surface, they just tend to look through like a bigger microscope or a magnifying lens. They just tend to be a little fussier from my experience. But subsurface, there's pretty much like nine or 10 nymphs I use pretty much day in and day out along with some junk flies and I would have confidence pretty much going anywhere on the planet with those flies tomorrow and feel like I would have success.
0: Yeah, I often I often think about that. It's not only with fly fishing, it could be skiing or tennis or, you know, a lot of different things. But, you know, if you give the same equipment to a, a master, they can probably do more with it than uh, than the, you know, the the more amateur. In other words, you could give a crappy racket, a tennis racket to a master, and they're still going to play a darn good game of tennis, right? <laughs> and it's kind of oh, like absolutely. with fly fishing yeah. or skiing, you know? I mean, I yeah. could give you any one of my fly rods, and it might not be the greatest fly rod, but you're going to outfish me every day of the week because you're more experienced, and, you know, you understand the fish in the water better than I do. So, you know, I hear it's like, and I've heard this, so many interviews I've done, yeah, presentation, presentation, getting the fly to where they are. And I remember, I can't remember who it was, but he was doing snorkeling and watching feed fish, and he was talking about how the trout just, they take everything in their mouth, spit it out, take it in, spit it out, because they don't have really time to analyze a nymph going by. I mean, it could be food, it might not be. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah, uh, and, and so I agree. I, I, and I think, yeah,
1: yeah and, and I agree. And I think the one thing from a guidance standpoint, like, when I focus on education, you know, I'm dealing with people that are focused but like when I was guiding I think I would carry a lot more flies basically for some people you can look at their body posture like after like 20 minutes they lose faith and I think what sometimes like a new if you have like like a whole arsenal of flies I think what a new fly does it, it just provides new hope that's all it is yeah like you can yeah. see they, they get perched up and they just start fishing with more confidence but for some people when they're getting going it just it gives and I see it with my Penn State students like they're not catching fish, and I'm telling them it's they're not their technique, but the moment they switch their flies, th- as soon as they switch their flies, like their body posture, they, they're just more in tune for the first couple casts, and then they catch a fish, they're like, oh, George, this fly's working better than the other. And I'm like, is it? Or is it? But, it, you know, it's a debate we'll never know, but I think sometimes having multiple flies for when you're starting it, it is a good thing. It's good from uh, a, a mental game that you play with yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But I I totally agree with you. I can see that happening. And that's happened, you know, it's kind of like I've always it's a stupid thing, but it's kind of like after I wash my truck, I think it drives better, you know. (laughs) It's just (laughs) a psychological thing, right? But it's not dirty, so it drives better. It's totally ridiculous, but I I think it drives better. So Uh, anyway, yeah, it's funny how some of these psychological things have psychological effects on us, but – well, we've run out of time, George. Most of the questions are on dry fly and nymphing, but we did cover a couple, of that, a couple of those things when we were talking about, I mean, dry fly and streamer fishing. But we did talk about a lot of those things when, when we were talking about nymphing. So uh, people, you'll have to go out and get George's book and uh, read up on that. Plus, there's just a ton more information in his book than we could cover tonight. But, George, you did a great job <laughs> covering all the territory that we covered tonight, so I appreciate it. No. Stick with you. me, George. Yeah, we're going to be giving away you know a few prizes here, including your book, you know, Fly Fishing Evolution by Stackpole. And so stick with me for a few more minutes, and uh, we'll give away those prizes, and we'll call it a night. The Bonefish and Tarpon Trust works very hard to safeguard the future of our beloved flats fisheries from protecting spawning sites threatened by unsustainable fishing pressure to securing historic funding to restore Florida's Everglades and estuaries. Thanks to their members, they've expanded their conservation to the Bahamas, Belize, and Mexico. There's still much more work to be done, and they need your help to do it. With your support, they can ensure that the flats fishery is a healthy, sustainable now and for the generations to come. Visit btt.org and become a member today of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And that's btt.org and uh, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Uh, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute to give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of this show? Just click on that link and uh, leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. But now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on some of these great prizes we have to give away. And if you are one of the lucky winners, we'll contact you after the show, tell you how to collect your information so we can deliver the prize to you. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. If you don't win tonight, great organization to support and join, so uh, look into it. For sure. Looks like our winner for that is Jim Pickett in California. Jim Pickett. So congrats, Jim. I hope you enjoy your membership, and we will be contacting you, like I said, after the show. Our second thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org. And again, another um, great organization to support. Um, And again, tu.org. And our winner for that is um, Jeffrey Shaney, Jeffrey Shaney in Colorado. So congratulations, Jeffrey. I know you'll enjoy your membership to, try to limit Unlimited as well. And now we're going to give away a copy of George's book, Fly Fishing Evolution, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And if you don't win tonight, go out and buy it. You can buy it off our site or probably in any of your favorite uh, fly fishing shops. So uh, check it out and um i'm going to clear my queue i notice there's more questions in here coming in on the on the internet sorry we can get get all those answered tonight but uh that's what we can do uh so question is when i asked george a question about uh important considerations when you're on nymphing to get proper drifts what was the most important thing that he mentioned what was the most important thing that he mentioned and uh let's see george it takes a takes a minute or two to get the answers coming in here and uh it's uh so we'll give it just a second here see if we can get the right answer that I was looking for. We have a little bit of delay in the in our audio going out, and then it takes people to uh oh, I think we may have gotten it the first thing here let's see it's um I got uh, Depth. Does that sound good to you, George?
1: Sounds good to me.
0: Yeah, and that's B. Fail? fail faily, faily, in Phoenix. So, B, I don't know what your first name is, but uh, maybe you go by B. You're the proud winner of George's new book, uh, Fly Fishing Evolution. So, um, please send me your, I do have your email address here. Please, uh, in that same box you answered the question in, Send me your uh, shipping address so that Stackpole can ship you out a book. And also give me your full name and your full name and your shipping address so we can get that uh, out to you as soon as possible. So congratulations, B. And thanks for paying attention and be so quick on the keyboard there. We've got many more uh, coming in here. Oh, some don't. Line control, rod position, but depth was what I was looking for. Wait, wait. Got a lot of different things. So, well, good. We got that. Um, George, hey, I appreciate so much for you being on with us. I know it's late on the East Coast, so I don't want to hold you up anymore. But thanks so much for sharing all your valuable information and, and also for publishing another fabulous book out there. So, well, uh, wishing you the best in the future.
1: Uh, thanks, Roger. It was a pleasure, and thanks for having me back. It's it's always good talking talk
0: with you. Okay, great. Have a good evening. On our next broadcast, yeah, we'll be on January 17th. We'll be at uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. I'll be interviewing Brian Fleshig, and our topic on the show will be the lure of success, how passion turned into profit for a shop owner, fly shop owner. Brian owns Mad River Outfitters, Midwest Fly Fishing Schools, and Ohio Fish Fly Fishing Guides. He started his shop in 1994 with a passion for fly fishing and the will to succeed, but not much more. Today, Mad River Outfitters, Ranks as one of the top three largest fly shops in the United States. Join us to learn how Brian started his business on a shoestring and how he has grown it through consistent marketing and proper business management. And you know, be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. It's right under Brian's picture on our homepage. There's an add to calendar button. Put it on your favorite calendar, and uh, then you won't miss that show. We'd like to thank Fly Fisher's International, Trout Unlimited. Stackpole Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com. And make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing on Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.